0: Welcome to Words Matter with Elise Jordan.
1: Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan. Today I'm joined by executive producer Adam Levine. We begin every episode with a promise to promote objective reality. And today, as always, we will try to honor that pledge. Steve, since Howard Schultz announced on 60 Minutes that he was seriously considering an independent bid for president of the United States, there have been a lot of questions about this bid and what you're doing and your involvement. These questions have come from our listeners, our followers, journalists, political experts, and we have questions ourselves. Thank you so much for coming in today to answer these questions. So we can have a serious discussion about what could be a historic presidential bid if Howard Schultz chooses to run or not. So let's go through the ground rules because we want our listeners to know that we uphold the same standards for ourselves as we would for any guest. First, this is on the record. The interview will not be edited for content. Chad will take out our coughs and throat clears, but that's it. So this means that our listeners will have me at my most uneloquent Second, we will not – we have not given Steve the questions in advance. This will be a legitimate interview. It is not scripted in any way. And finally, we will also adhere to the premise that everyone is entitled to their own opinions, not their own facts. We will allow Steve to offer his opinions, and we will hold him to the same standard as we would any guest. And so with that, why are you doing this?
0: Because the two-party system in America is profoundly broken. It's shattered. And the evidence of that – is the 45th president of the United States sitting in the Oval Office, who I believe is a great threat to the future of the country. But he didn't arrive there either providentially or accidentally. He arrived there because of the sickness in the system. Is that ultimately when people become angry enough, disillusioned enough, cynical enough, they're able to hear the words of the con man, the carnival barker, and thus we are where we are.
2: Why, why now? Why, why 2020? Why not uh, look to fix that system, which I think you, your diagnosis, I think, is dead on. I think the system is absolutely broken. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. I think everybody agrees with that. But why this moment? Why not wait another cycle?
0: It was interesting that one of the chief reasons offered why this couldn't be a possibility here in 2020 was by Michael Bloomberg, And what Mayor Bloomberg said, and by the way, I think he is the greatest mayor in the history of New York. I think he's one of the most competent human beings on the planet. And on the one to 10 scale of approval, for me, he clocks in at about a 16 and a half. But what he said was, is I looked at this closely in 2016. And I came to the conclusion that if I got into the race, then Donald Trump would be the president of the United States. So Michael Bloomberg made a decision not to get into the race. And the result was, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. And so four years later, Michael Bloomberg's takeaway from that is that if an independent runs, Donald Trump will be reelected as president of the United States.
2: Do you think this is the only way to stop him from being
0: reelected? I think that there's a real lack of imagination that it's possible for a Democratic nominee To lose the election to Donald Trump. So many people are looking at a disapproval number that's at 56%. But presidential elections aren't referendums, they're choices. And so if you give the American people a choice, and the choice comes down to, well, what side's base do I fear the most, there's an awfully good chance that the answer will not be Donald Trump's base. Because for millions of college-educated Republican suburban women, for example, who were part of the coalition that put the Democrats into a 40-seat majority, when they hear candidates saying, we'll get rid of the insurance companies, calling for $30 trillion in new spending, talking about marginal tax rates that go into the 60s and 70s, those families will view those proposals as an immediate threat to their economic livelihood, to their children's future, while they continue to regard Donald Trump
2: as an abstract threat, a threat for sure. But Steve, the question was about why now? Why 2020? Why? Is this the only way to stop him?
0: Because because it may be the case that 2020 is the year where the American political system can be disrupted. Um, And I think specifically... And I think it's important we step back and look at the hysteria of the reaction to an accomplished American saying we'll these get, words. We'll get to
2: hysteria right? in a minute. These yes. words,
0: right? Absolutely. I'm thinking about running for president of the United States, which in our country, which last time I checked, remains the United States of America, not Trumpistan. That's not only the right of every American. It's the God-given right in our system of every American to be able to do that should they so choose. And so he hasn't announced the candidacy. What he said is, I'm going to take a look at it. I'm going to take a hard look at it. We're 670-some-odd days before the next presidential election. He said, I'm going to travel the country. I'm going to visit with the American people. I'm going to advance ideas, and we'll see what happens. That's all he said.
1: And I do think we should have the free speech debate as part of we can discuss media reaction. But can we just dig into strategy a little bit more with you as looking at the landscape and the environment for a third party? So why is this particular moment? Is it because of the extreme polarizations of of both parties and looking is this going to be a third party bid or in the creation of a third party, or is it an individual bid mounting the ballot access?
0: What, what, Howard, what Howard Schultz said is that he's seriously considering running for president. If he does so, he'll do it as an independent candidate. He's not talking about starting a third party. He's talking about conceptually running as an independent candidate.
1: That's interesting, because you had, I had always thought that this was going to be a third party, a more moderate option of sorts and the independent bid, why not run as a Democrat?
0: Well, I think that at the end of the day, and I'm flummoxed by, to some degree, the opposition to the idea in our...
1: Because people see it as cutting the line, as not having to go through the bullshit of doing a primary and of... You know, the winnowing of our system, whether we like it or not. And the Democrats rigged their primary. They ended up with a candidate their base didn't want. The Republicans, we didn't rig our primary. We should have enforced some discipline and not let a Democrat up on the debate stage at the beginning of the process. But that's neither neither here nor there. But I think a lot of the outcry that you're seeing is genuine unease among Americans about campaign well, finance. Well, let me,
0: let me say- So campaign finance issue. Well, let me let me dispute completely that we're hearing an outcry from Americans. What I, we're What we're hearing an outcry from is Democratic political operatives and from members of the media establishment, which has had an interesting effect over the course of the first week since he speculated that I may want to do this. The total result of that generated scores and scores and scores of negative headlines, a fierce backlash on Twitter, and then the self-satisfaction of the media class, which then says, well, our hysteria has produced these negative headlines and has produced this closed uh, Twitter feedback loop of constant negativity, and therefore, we've succeeded in disrupting. What it is that Howard Schultz said about taking a look and for the presidency, see, that's, that's a good, and in fact, that's what a good happened? Di- that's a good
2: discussion. One of the things we wanted to do, stick with, in here is the is the is the third party, the path to 270. Because again, you have been a brilliant strategist. You've run a bunch of campaigns. Theoretical. Yeah. So we're, we're, I understand. We're going to get to that. We want to talk about that. That's important. I think that's more in the we talk about you and what you've gone through in the past week and 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 all that. But. I think one of the important things here is we want to know, like, how do you get to 270? I think it's an interesting conversation. And I think it's one that, again, given your position and given your expertise – I personally would like to see, and I'm not a Democratic operative or in the media class.
1: Well, because when I was giving my nice little rant about Ross Perot and the importance in my political development, Ross Perot got 19 percent of the vote. I remember sitting around and watching those specials that he did on television and my dad and my grandpa saying, wow, this guy it makes so much sense. And the way he did it was pretty amazing And that grassroots supporters got him all that ballot access. He flirted around. And because of the grassroots support, he ended up with 19 percent, but he didn't carry any states. So what would be the path? What do you see as the realistic path? Well, I think it's
0: I think it's a premature question. in in this sense, in that what Howard Schultz has said is he's going to consider seriously running for president. He's going to have a conversation with the American people. He's going to see if there are multiple paths to 270 electoral votes. But as a basic answer to your question is over the last generation as presidential campaigns have been narrowed to about eight states, really sometimes even less than that. And within those states, an incredibly small percentage of the population that is undecided. If you had a legitimate independent candidate in the race, what happens is you have a 50 state race. Or more precisely, 45 or 46. So parts of the country that haven't seen a competitive presidential cycle in a generation all of a sudden will see one. And the reality is, in all sorts of states, you're as likely to see presidential candidates as you would see them in Calgary or in Ontario. You just don't see them. So when you look at that and you envision a three-way race for plurality, We envision that there would be multiple paths to 270 electoral votes. And so you just have to wait and see. But I think the important thing to understand what Howard Schultz has said is he would never consider doing this as a spoiler candidate. He would consider doing it if there were paths to victory and that he'll travel the country, see if the American people are receptive to the idea. We do know that after the reaction in the first week, that 53 percent of the country knows that he's thinking of running for president. And he's already at 18 percent in the polls, according to his polling, against all three main Democratic challengers at this point, Warren Sanders and Harris. So
1: clearly the outcry, which you tried, you know, you were arguing over the nature of the outcry, but I agree that it's Democrats who were very upset by this. And that means that you can expect a lot of legal challenges in states with ballot access. How much, if you just had to give a raw estimate, do you think just in legal, does a campaign, an independent candidacy like this have to anticipate as part of their ballot access?
0: Ten million dollars. And ballot access for all 50 states was something that will cost between 37 to $55 million.
2: So, Steve, I, I checked with a couple law firms and people who do this practice nationwide, and the estimates for them was somewhere between uh, $250 million and north. That's what – because – and by the way, what they're pointing to, anyway, that, that, that's what—that's the number that they give. There's some reasons for that. But do you think that you, you can guarantee that it's going to be $50 million or less? Is that is – That
0: number is – to Way too high. It's not a real number.
2: Here's what, here's what they're pointing to, Steve. In 2004, which is an, a race that you know very well, when Democrats had perceived that Ralph Nader had stolen the election from Al Gore in 2000, they went around and they challenged. And the New York Times did a whole story on that. And Charlie Cook said it. He said, quote, the Democrats are going to make this as difficult as possible and debilitating as possible for him, meaning Nader making him expend blood, sweat, and tears for every inch. In a legal battle, which it's going to be a legal battle, is Howard Schultz prepared to spend up to $250,000?
0: I think he'd be delighted to spend $250,000. Okay.
2: On money, can we just stick with that for a second? Because in 2016, the DNC raised and spent 70, around $72 million – sorry, $372 million. Hillary Clinton's campaign – was seven hundred and sixty-eight million. That's combined about one point one billion, and that was without the ballot access. Is Howard Schultz prepared to spend that kind of money? And that, by the way, that effort lost to Donald Trump. He's going to have to spend more in an effort to beat Donald Trump. So, is he willing to spend that kind of money?
0: I think a winning presidential campaign, if you're just to throw a dart on the wall and look at the cost of it, you know, I would I would stipulate is somewhere upwards around one point two billion dollars.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think that's right.
1: So. The voters that you're going for, hearing Howard Schultz describe where he stands on issues, he does seem to be fiscally conservative, more socially liberal. Who are those voters that you're peeling away? Because I've seen different analysis from you know various camps. Some say, actually, it's going to pull from Trump. Actually, it's going to pull from Democrats. How do you see
0: well, let's, the let's, electorate? Let's back up. Let's just, I think it's important to back up because I think that there's a number of questions that you're asking that we should contextualize and then we can get more deeply into them. The first thing is all of the people that have appeared on television and said with utter certainty that he cannot win, this must not be, are they not the same people who from the moment that Donald Trump came down the escalator, said he's a clown and a joke, and he can't get over 10% in the Republican primary. And then he couldn't get over 20%. And then once he was at 50%, it would be a contested convention. And then, of course, he could never beat Hillary Clinton. But, But Steve, here's the problem. And hold let me finish. And so on and so forth. The inerrancy or the, the fidelity to the inerrancy is just, just extraordinary to watch. I mean, So first off, nobody knows what's going to happen. We've seen in the last couple of election cycles, a state senator from Illinois with the middle name Hussein be elected the 44th president of the United States. We saw the Trump insurgency take the White House, and we saw the Bernie Sanders insurgency almost take down Hillary Clinton. We are clearly, historically, in a period where we have seen a historic successive wave election. So it would indicate to me that we may well be at the hour of disruption in the system in the system that produced Donald Trump. So nobody knows what's going to happen six hundred and seventy days from the election, including whether if Donald Trump will even be in the White House
2: in, in, November here, the of, thing, Steve, in November of people 2020. People want – and, and you know, your campaign has pointed out. And, and, it's not it's a campaign.
0: A, it's sorry, a speculative effort.
2: Your effort has pointed this out, that there's 41 percent of people who are independents in this country. And one of the things we're trying to get to is – I know you say it's premature, but I'd like to think that Howard Schultz, having the business background that he does, would have looked at Steve Schmidt and said, Steve, what's the path to 270? If Of those – Forty one percent. You know, if you look at a state like California, you could get every Trump voter and still need two million votes. You look at the states like Alabama and Tennessee, where Donald Trump won by by more than 20 percent. And it's the same effect. What's the path? What states give us a state, give us three or four that you think that has that your metrics, your numbers you've talked about on uh, interviews diligence.
0: I think it's I think it's premature to sit and go through an electoral map and to say this is what the contours of the race will be. Suffice it to say, I think that if the parties produce two unelectable candidates and two ideologically extreme candidates through a process which has become dominant in American politics, which is incitement, incitement towards the base. So what is it that we see on the the Democratic side thus far with the candidates that are in on the race? Well, we see candidates talking about on top of the $21 trillion federal debt we already have is that everybody will have a government paid for education, government paid for healthcare, government paid for daycare, government paid for student loan forgiveness, 30, $40 trillion of new spending, removal of choice, for example, private insurance with healthcare. And my contention would be is that that would create the scenario by which you have two unelectable candidates running against each other, where one of the unelectable candidates is going to win, which happened last time. And in that scenario, I think it is entirely possible that a centrist candidate, an independent candidate beholden to no party, is able to become a plurality winner. One of the things when everybody cites Ross Perot to remember is that, first off, 2020 is not 1992. Very different time in the country. And secondly, when we look at it, everybody forgets that Ross Perot was ahead with 39% of the vote before he had a mental breakdown and accused the Bush family of sabotaging his daughter's wedding.
1: You know, but that's an interesting point. You're talking about when he peaked at that moment in the summer when he was so far ahead, and then it follows a pattern of how they how independent candidates will peak. Like Gary Johnson was at around, I think, nine to 12 percent. And then by Election Day, he got three percent. Granted, we all know what kind of gaffes went into that. But how does an independent candidate hold momentum over the course of a cycle?
0: Well, in the case of Gary Johnson, by being competent and prepared, which he was not. And in the case of Ross Perot, by being not batshit crazy, which Howard Schultz definitely is not. And let's Also back up to this point because, you know, we've talked about all of this stuff, but we've not actually talked about the man, which seems somewhat relevant. We
2: want to stick on third party for a minute. The man is important, but you brought it. We brought up Ross Perot. Uh, Matt Bennett of the centrist group Third Way said to Politico, there's literally a guy who is carved into Mount Rushmore who could not win as an independent. If Teddy Roosevelt can't win as a third party, you can't do it. It can't be done.
0: Well, I think to extrapolate from the election of 1912 and make conclusions about 2020, I think is just silly.
2: OK, you wanted to talk about the man in terms of this third party, you say he didn't look at it. I spent some time, Steele, over the last few days with the Democratic platform, my 2016 Democratic platform. I don't know if you've ever read the document. I don't know if Howard's ever read the document, but I'd be interested to know what in this document, I'm happy to let you look at it, what in this document Howard Schultz says is too far extreme to the left that he cannot even decide to run in a Democratic primary. Much less, that's uh, disingenuous for him to run as a Democrat. What's in this platform that he can't support?
0: Well, as you know, candidates don't particularly adhere to their party's platforms, which are constructed through all manner of vague ex- processes exactly. at the at the conventions. One of my one of my favorite. Moments in recent history at a convention was my friend Antonio Villarigosa, who was chairing the platform committee as the Democrats were on the floor. I believe the issue was objecting to the inclusion of the word God into the platform and knowing how dangerous that was politically, uh, though the crowd was very much against the vote. He heard something different, used the big gavel to gavel it down. But I don't think the platform has anything to do with anything. What? But wait, why can't he run as a Democrat? what, what, what What Howard Schultz has said is that he doesn't feel represented by the Democratic Party. That he feels that he would have to be disingenuous to navigate the process, and that at the end of the day, what he wants to explore is a route outside of that process. There's no mention of these two parties in the American Constitution or any political party. In fact, the father of the country. Uh, George Washington, um, who has relevance today uh, for a couple of reasons. But most significantly, on the basis of his being the first person in 2000 years of history who could have been a king, could have been an emperor, returning home, voluntarily surrendering power and becoming the first person in 2000 years of human history to say, I don't want the power to step away from it. He put the institutions ahead of the individual. And when he left office, when he said goodbye, he left a warning. And what was the warning? The the warning was about factions. And factions in today's language are political parties. He warned about political parties who would subvert the national interest, who would put their tribal interests ahead of the country. And that's exactly where we are today. And so these political parties, which I would argue are two of the greatest institutions for the advancement of human freedom and dignity, not just in American history, but in world history, have become deeply corrupted, uh, have become deeply ineffectual. And the American people just watched the shutdown for 37 days of government arguing over whether a fence was a wall or a wall is a fence or some other nonsense. And what he's saying is we can do whatever we want in America. We're in charge of the politicians, not the other way around. And we'll see what happens. And
2: Howard Schultz, by the way, views himself as George Washington. He said it in an interview. He said he's the first person in the history of the republic who is an independent candidate. I thought that was interesting. Does Howard Schultz see himself as, as a George Washington? No,
0: but I think that's a stupid question, obviously. Well, it's
2: not a stupid question because he said it.
0: No, he didn't say it. You're what distorting he it. What did he say? He said he'd be the first independent person since George Washington. OK. There's no comparison
2: there?
1: Let's move this to foreign policy, because George Washington's farewell address was a call for less foreign intervention and to be wary, also of foreign intervention. And so let's talk about Howard Schultz a little bit. Where is he on foreign policy?
0: Well, I think that you can... Get a view of where he is on foreign policy. If you go back to earlier this year, he gave a speech where uh, President Bush was honored at the Atlantic Council. He gave one of those speeches. and I think that by any objective measurement that he would fall within the tradition that endured from President Truman through president through President Obama.
1: Would you say that he is a foreign policy realist? In the tradition of say James Baker, or does he tend to be you know for democracy promotion? He said he would support leaving troops in Syria the other day.
0: He he did say that and thought that Trump's decision announcing the withdrawal precipitously, like he did, uh, was a mistake. I think if you go back and he's not given any national security or foreign policy addresses in the five days since he said yeah. he was thinking about running for president as an independent. But if you look at what he said in that Atlanta Council speech, what he talked about was the importance of alliances, uh, the connection within that alliance of free peoples, the idea that America is the indispensable nation in the world, that if the United States steps back, that vacuum will be filled with actors that are not benevolent, that are not benign. And so I think that he stayed in that speech well within the boundaries of what we would recognize as a foreign policy that James Baker would be deeply comfortable with.
2: Steve, as you well know, 43 of the 44 presidents of the United States have either held high elective office, appointed office, or served in the military. The Mm -hmm. only one who hasn't is Donald Trump. By November of 2020, Donald Trump will have been president for almost four years. Do you think after the four years of Donald Trump, somebody the American people want to elect somebody who has less government experience than the person with the least amount of experience in the history of the country?
0: Well, I think the American people look at the political class in the country with a mixture of revulsion and contempt, disdain. I think we look at the numbers that talk about trust in institutions, faith in systems like democracy. We see the consequences of the erosion of trust in all of those areas, all of those areas. And so Howard Schultz is a very different person than Donald Trump. He's someone who came from nothing, no inheritance, Uh, As he said, his only goal was to build a company his dad never got a chance to work for. And that company, which operates in 77 countries and 100 million people walked through the doors of last week, is someone I think has a point of view about the world, how it operates, America's place in it. He's someone uh, who built a company that flies the American flag all over the world. Uh, The idea, though, that we are fated to be represented by a farm system that comes up through the Congress or the United States Senate, and these are the people that are qualified to lead the country, if you look at the outcome we've gotten through that system, I would argue that it's not a very good outcome. So at the end of the day, the American people make a determination, they evaluate, they look at people's toughness, they look at their character, they look at their resoluteness, they look at their biography, they look at their vision for the, for the country. Um, election's always a choice, and Donald Trump's been a disaster for the country. Uh, What I would argue is what produced him is a broken political system. We'll get to see that political system on full display uh, during the State of the Union, which is this evening. And um, we'll have an opportunity to hear the voice of somebody who rose from nothing, lived the American dream, and wants to talk about how to preserve it.
1: Will this be, if Howard Schultz does decide to enter the race, will he run an issues-driven campaign? And will reducing the deficit continue to be, as he said, his primary focus? I
0: think the thing that that you will most see from him in the conversation that lies ahead is honesty. He's going to have a very honest conversation, a very adult conversation with the American people about all manner of issues that have not been talked about seriously in a long, long, long time. I mean, we have a debate that rages in this country, if you look at all of the issues facing it, that is about a wall on the southern border that is completely unnecessary in a moment of time where there's zero net illegal immigration coming across the southern border.
2: Steve, you say he wants to have an adult conversation. Last week, he called... A seventy percent tax on incomes over ten million dollars—ridiculous—from a United States Congresswoman who happened to have been elected to something. Now, I know you're a guy of words, Steve, and ridiculous means deserving or inviting derision or mockery, absurd. Uh, synonyms: comical, hilarious. Uh, we could go on. Farcical. Is that what does he? Does he really mean that a tax on incomes? Over $10 million at 70 percent, which is widely popular with the American people, is ridiculous. Is that an adult conversation?
0: Yeah, I think he thinks it's ridiculous and it's confiscatory and that it's anti-growth. That would be his point.
2: What is, will Derek Jeter or uh, another athlete not hit another home run because they're going to get taxed at 70? What's the economic behavior that he thinks it's anti-growth other than his own pocket?
0: Adam, this is bullshit. I'm, I'm not doing this.
2: Steve, you got to answer the questions. I'm not. you got to, Steve. I'm not. Unfortunately, the interview ended there. We wanted to ask Steve some serious and important questions about his new role, questions we'd gotten from our listeners, followers, colleagues, friends, and questions we had ourselves. If our tone was a bit more pointed and direct than usual, it's because this is a topic of great consequence. And these are extraordinarily dangerous times, as Steve himself has reminded us again and again over the last two years. The very future of our republic may hang in the balance. We started Words Matter because we wanted to create a place where truth, facts, and objective reality were still practiced in public discourse. Steve chose a different path. He's moving on, and so are we. We believe that especially at this pivotal moment in our history, words do have power, and they do have consequences. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for joining us every week. We know there are a lot of ways you could spend your time, and we really appreciate you spending it with us. Words Matter will be back next week. We hope you will be too. You've been listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan.